Now, I'm taking a different track to address more directly the issues I see with the Holy Spirit. And that is basically the denial of the personhood of the Holy Spirit. And so, um, I will lightly come around to the deity of the Holy Spirit, but I think that's, that's more obvious. It's the personhood that's the area of contention. Um, what was interesting is with this major linchpin with his websites and everything in Georgia a few years ago, uh, as we dialogued, and you know, I believe the Father, I believe this Son business, but the Holy Spirit is not a person. I joked with him, I said, so you're really a Binitarian, not a Trinitarian. <clears throat> and once you know it, I hit his website about a year later and he had a little article in which he described himself as a Binitarian, so I coined a word which he adopted. <laughs> <clears throat> that way. So, um, I'm focusing again on the personhood, and I'm going about it again with the biblical theology with evidences found by examining personal functions performed by the Holy Spirit. I don't have time to deal with Old Testament roots when I've done this for camp meetings and the like. Um, I start with Old Testament examples of personal functionalities of the Holy Spirit. And then I show the matching New Testament one. So we're just going to give you the matching New Testament without the Old Testament for the sake of time today. Ephesians 4 verse 30. This is the one I will give you the Old Testament parallel. Both tell us not to grieve the Holy Spirit of God. This is an emotional word. So the Holy Spirit is ascribed as having some kind of emotional response. And emotions are the function of a person, not of an impersonal entity. Matthew 12, 31 and 32, the Holy Spirit can be blasphemed and sinned against just as Christ can be blasphemed and sinned against. Blasphemy is always against a person, um, whether a divine person or also when you ridicule other people in the Bible, that's also blasphemeo. Um, they blaspheme the apostles and so forth, trying to discredit them. Um, it has the technical term that when you claim divine attributes when you're not God, that's a fundamental slap in the face of God, and hence the technical theological concept of blasphemy. Um, but in the Greek New Testament, it is any kind of disrespectful slap in the face uh, to anybody. The point is, blasphemy happens to a person. I know find nowhere in the Bible where it happens to a donkey or to a rock or, or a, it's somebody who has to be intelligent enough to understand they're being insulted. Okay. And likewise to sin against. Um, and the parallelism is juxtaposing with blaspheming Christ who is a person. And he's a divine person. And so the parallelism then if Christ is a person and divine it's strongly implying that the Holy Spirit has to be a person and divine to be blasphemed and sinned against in the same way as Christ. And so I think that's evidence of personhood and divinity of the Holy Spirit, especially the personhood. Holy Spirit intercedes and pleads for us in Romans 8. Pleading for us, this is courtroom type language. Intercession is done by people, not by forces. Likewise, the same passage, Paul talks about the mind, the noose of the spirit. In Greek thinking, noose is a human quality, a human or divine quality. Animals really don't have noose as such. This is, persons have minds, forces don't. Acts 13 and 1 Corinthians 12, the Holy Spirit is a causal agent making de administrative decisions. So 1 Corinthians 12, it's the Holy Spirit who decides who gets which spiritual gifts. Administrative decision-making, function of a person, not a force. <clears throat> Acts 13, the Holy Spirit calls and sets, I need to put an S in there, sets apart Paul and Barnabas to a work. And he says, set them apart to me. The Holy Spirit uses a personal pronoun from the, the data form of ego, I, for himself, personal pronoun, plus the function of calling, making an administrative decision, plus the fact that he's in conversation with the church and using language. 
Okay? You find the Holy Spirit using language several times, right? Comes to Paul in the dream, you know, etc. Old Testament, Ezekiel has a conversation with the Spirit of God, lifts him up, says things to him, Ezekiel says things back. Holy Spirit's a conversationalist. He uses language. That's what people do. That's what person, I say people in the sense of person, not in the sense of human. Let me clarify one thing right here. Some of our non-anti-Trinitarians feel that calling the Holy Spirit a person is somehow humanizing and turning him into a creature. So understand that the word person doesn't necessarily mean human. Okay, we have human persons, angelic persons, divine persons. Person is someone who has this ability to think and reason and relate and love and so forth and so on. Um, so we have different kinds of persons, divine, angelic, human, etc. okay? Cherubim and seraphim are types of persons. So person does not imply creation, it's just that you have these abilities to interact and relate this way. Matthew 28, Holy Spirit shares a name with the Father and the Son. Now we've already seen the Father and the Son sharing the name Yahweh in Hebrews, among other places. Interestingly, in Hebrews, I admit it's the only place in the New Testament, but in Hebrews 3, 7, he says the Holy Spirit is speaking, but when you look at Psalm, what is it, 95, that is, that is being quoted in the Psalm, it's Yahweh who's speaking. So suddenly, what Psalm says is Yahweh speaking, is now the Holy Spirit speaking, so Hebrews 3 now ties the Holy Spirit to Yahweh. This is why the three of them share one name. Again, some would cite the greetings from. I recognize there's a challenge with the seven spirits. Not everybody agrees that's the Holy Spirit. Um, um, but many do. And so once you accept this is the Holy Spirit, you have the triune greeting but I recognize there's more debate over this. This is not so debatable to me. I think this is pretty slam dunk, okay? John 16, 8, the Holy Spirit convicts of sin, which is related to that pleading and intercessory type function. More so, the Holy Spirit, we're promised, is going to teach and to guide. This is the book of Acts, right? Where the Holy Spirit guides him, go here, don't go there, and so forth. Um, back to those administrative functions and so forth. I will pray the Father, said Jesus, and he will give you another counselor or comforter, depending on your English translation, to be with you forever. Now, I want to start with the word another. We've got two possible Greek words. We've got heteros, which is another of a different kind. Biblical example, Paul complains that there's another gospel of a different kind that's a false gospel floating around and he wrote the Galatians to counter that, another of a different kind gospel, okay? If we were to make an analogy, um, let's say we had a fruit bar up here and you went up and you got a banana and you eat your banana and you come back up to deposit the skin and get some more fruit and if you asked the server for a heteros piece of fruit, you'll get something other than a banana. See, a, another of a different kind of fruit, okay? Then there's alos, it's another of the same kind. For example, here another parable in this same genre I'm talking with, or in our fruit analogy, if you come up with the banana peel and you say, give me an alos piece of fruit, you would get another banana. So which one of these is the another counselor? Alos. It's alos. Now, the lexicons do note that there are a few places where these two words get blurred and get used interchangeably, but I see nothing in John 14 that would allow that interchangeability. And so I'm confident that alos is another of the same kind uh, this way. Now, before I finish on alos, I want to look at comforter for a moment. John 14, this word is parakletos a helper or an intercessor or an advocate. This is another legal term, the one who advocates for you in court. Okay. John 14 and 16, the comforter is the Holy Spirit. The parakletos is the Holy Spirit. But in 1 John 2, 1, I write these things to you that you may not sin, but if we sin, we have a what? 
an advocate, a parakletos, same word. Jesus is parakletos too. But because our English translates one as comforter or counselor and the other as advocate, you don't see it. Follow me? Okay. By the way, I see a couple of in-spirit people who may have gotten here late. This is being recorded by Audioverse, and they will also have the PowerPoint PDF to go with it. So if you came in late, that will all be taken care of eventually. Back to business. So both Jesus and the Holy Spirit are... Parakletos, shared title, shared function. Hint, hint, if Jesus is divine, etc., what does that tell you about the Holy Spirit? <laughs> Parakletos is a role held by a person. Impersonal forces are not advocates in court. So with both as Parakletos, Jesus and the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit being an alos, that is another one of the same kind as Christ, if Christ is a parakletos who is a person, for the Holy Spirit to be a parakletos who's a person of the same kind, he's got to be a personal entity as well. If Christ is a divine parakletos, to be another of the same kind, the Holy Spirit has to be a divine. And this is why Jesus says, don't worry that I'm going away, because he's basically saying, I'm sending you my mirror image, another one just like me. It's not going to be different. But the point that it's another, these are two separate entities. Okay, we have a form of modalism coming into our anti-Trinitarians where they're trying to, some of them are saying that Jesus, correction, the Holy Spirit is simply Jesus returning unincarnated uh, with his humanity removed. But that would not be another, <clears throat> that would just be the same guy repackaged. but I will pray the Father and he's going to send this other. I, one being, will pray the Father, second being, who will send this other who will represent me, third being. Right, I'll take care of it, he says. And then he comes to us through the Holy Spirit. So, some challenging text. So, what's the point then? I think we got overwhelming evidence that the Holy Spirit's a personal being. I don't have time for the Ellen White quotes where she says things like the Holy Spirit is as much a person as God is a person. Um, uh, she wrote to Avondale and said that the Holy Spirit who is a person as much as God is a person is walking around the grounds observing what's going on. You can find that all, uh, the, the short versions in evangelism as I recall, like 615, 16 area. Um, uh, the longer versions extended out um, that way. Also, by the way, uh, just as a quick aside, you've got a whole bunch of Ellen White quotes where she says there are three persons. The heavenly trio, three persons. She names them Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, or Holy Spirit, etc. And when I've had some email exchanges and you give them these three person quotes, They just start pulling these odd quotes and throwing them at you. And what it is, is it reminds me when I'm dealing with the non-Adventist who's trying to prove the immortality of the soul. And so you give your Bible study on the mortality of the soul. Well, what do you do with absent from the body? What do you do with this spirit returning into the boy with with the birth there? um, I can't think of who it was now. Rachel, as I recall, uh, when she was dying uh, or, you know, her spirit left her, you know, and then the Shunem woman's son, the spirit, came in. And so you get all these little objections with these texts, right? And what's our answer? Outside of, we say we have to look at the larger biblical picture and then figure out how these challenging texts fit into the larger picture, right? You've got to do the same with Ellen White. And she paints a very triune God She doesn't use the term Trinity because of the precision we talked about. But there's no question. She says three persons, three persons, divine trio, three powers of heaven. And if there's a third, and by the way, she always calls the Holy Spirit the third person of the Godhead. So if there's a third, got to be two others, right? It's all over her theology. So whatever these other 
unique quotes are that might be leverageable, we have to take in the larger picture. For example, there are quotes where Ellen White says that Christ died for those who believe in him. If I take that quote out of her larger theology, I can make her into a Calvinist who says Christ only dies for the elect, but he did not die for everyone. So what do I have to do? I go all over Ellen White and discover so many places where she's clearly Arminian, Christ died for everyone. So I'm understanding that her comment about Christ dying for those who believed in him is not a restrictive comment, but she's focusing on Christ's relationship with his believers, um, you know, kind of a thing, right? So we got the same issue with Trinity. I'm gonna say one more thing. I'm ad-libbing for a moment, but I feel moved by the spirit to say this. I have run into anti-Trinitarians who allege that the Trinitarian statements in Ellen White's writings were added by the White estate to be fashionable with the modern Adventist church. A number of years ago, I was doing this topic at a big ATS conference in Montemorelos, Mexico. A couple thousand away, maybe packed the place from all over Mexico. And one of the representatives of the White estate, I think it was Merlin Burt, had a PowerPoint from Tim Poyer that he presented in which they started with a photograph of a quote from, say, Desire of Ages, that's Trinitarian. And then the next photo was the final approved manuscript with her signature on it and showing where that quote was in the manuscript and so forth. And then the pre-manuscript and then the pencil on paper handwriting of Ellen White with the exact words. And over and over again, 15 or 20 different Trinitarian statements, they took us back literally to the handwriting of Ellen White. A few others, when she wrote it out by hand, a secretary would transcribe it, then they threw out the handwriting, but then Ellen White would start editing on the secretarial typed copy. And you would see her changing wording all around this Trinitarian statement and then signing off, I approve this page for publication on the top or the bottom. And when presented with that evidence, they just tend, to, in, my, in my experience, to fall back and say, well, all that's a fabrication of the white estate. <laughs> and so at some point, But the White Estate can definitively prove these are not additions. These are in her own handwriting. Um, this way. And it makes sense. She was a good Methodist. Uh, all right, a couple of challenging texts, and then we'll wrap it up here. Um, I want to focus on monogenesis and the only begotten issue. Um, I did not put the firstborn in here, so that can come up in Q&A. Followed by the verb ganao, and possibly, uh, basically, a, um, Psalm 2 and Proverbs 8, very briefly. Monogenes. Anti-Trinitarians seem heavily influenced by the King James translation, only begotten. The assertion is that monogenes is a compound from mono and the verb ganao, but this is not defendable, and I'll tell you why in a minute. The actual roots are mono, which is soul only or alone, and from ginomai, to be or to become. And hence, mono being one of a kind, unique. The anti-Trinitarians interpret uh, as if begotten is the core focus or meaning. See, only begotten up here, and it's the begotten. See, the Bible says the Son was begotten. But it all depends on what monogenes means. Okay? And so I've been told that since we have to believe, quote, in the only begotten Son in order to have eternal life, that if you deny the eternal begottenness, then you don't believe in the begottenness of the Son, and that's a salvation issue. And that's why they harp on this, okay? Because you're denying the begottenness of the Son. Well, I am denying the eternal begottenness, but not the begottenness of the incarnation, okay? Which is, and we'll get back to that. So, 
the old Latin, prior to Jerome, all monogenesis, whether of Jesus or anybody else, were always translated with the Latin unicus, or however you say that in Latin, I'm taking my best guess, I have no guess, I have no training, uh, possibly unicus, and this is the root of our word unique, and means that, okay? So it's interesting that the early Latin fathers all understood this as the concept of unique, not the concept of any kind of originating or begetting. Very interesting. It's Jerome who modifies monogenes, but he only modifies it in reference to Christ. All the other monogeneses in the New Testament, he translates with unicus. But as soon as it's of Christ, he changes it to the Latin equivalent of the Greek monogenao, only begotten. But I smell a little fishiness here because he published his in AD 32, which is the calendar year after the final creedal form and the eternal, bedding, the eternal begetting is now creedalized. And once the eternal begetting is now creedalized, suddenly Jerome changes the translation from unique to only begotten so that it reflects the creed. So it's Jerome's fault that the King James says only begotten because they took it from the Texas Receptus, which is Jerome's basically manuscript. Outside of Jerome, there is no linguistic basis for monogenes uh, to be connected to genao. So in my thinking, I think it's highly probable that Jerome alters the translation to fit the creed. And that's where we get this idea of the eternal begetting. It's from the Greek philosophy, not from the Bible. And what's interesting is our anti-Trinitarians are picking up this philosophical change from the Neoplatonists, and they're calling it biblical. If we go to the Bible, the Septuagint translators only use four times monogenes in the Old Testament. And they use it each time to translate the Hebrew word yachid, which is to be unique or alone or solitary uh, or alone, etc. So yachid is always this. Four times they use monogenes to translate yachid. However, they use other words also to translate yachid in other passages. I want to look at the four very quickly. In Judges, the story of Jephthah, his daughter that he's about to sacrifice, that he vows, you know, that he has to sacrifice in fulfillment of his vow, was his only child, his yachid child. He had neither son nor daughter. The focus is on the solitary, unique nature not that she was sired by Jephthah because the word daughter and child would automatically cover the sired. The point is, she's the only one he sired. She's the unique one he sired because he has no others. Verses, uh, numbers two and three, the Septuagint chapters compared to our chapter in versing are different. Um, it's saving my personal life from the dogs and the lions as metaphors of my enemies. So it's a way of saying myself. So monogenes now becomes myself. Certainly I did not beget myself. <laughs> Little problem here, right? And Psalm 25, I am alone or desolate and afflicted. So it's not even related to the issue. Uh, that's the four Old Testament uses. In the New Testament, Luke has three uses like Jephthah, all of only children. He was the sole child of the family. So the focus is again on the uniqueness and the onlyness, not on the begetting and the origins. Hebrews uses it of Isaac, right? Isaac is Abraham's monogenes son. And you have to stop and say, Isaac was not Abraham's only child, right? He had seven other sons that we know of. Ishmael and six sons by Keturah. So what is monogenes telling us about Isaac? It's not telling us about who his father is. The word son takes care of that. The point is it's telling us that Isaac was the one-of-a-kind unique son for two reasons. 
his miraculous nature of his birth, that the others were not so miraculously birthed. And Isaac is the one through whom the promise goes, which sets him apart from the seven brothers that the promise does not go through. The focus is on the uniqueness of Isaac. We all know he's Abraham's son, the one of a kind. So when I've done this, the Antitarians, Trinitarians will come back and focus on the, the only child. Child! Well, yeah, the word child has the beginning, but not the only part. Whereas the monogenesis focusing on the only, not the child. We've got another word for child. My response, again, is we get the, the term beginning from the child. I've already said that. Um, this is pretty much refreshing. And again, we don't beget ourselves like in the Psalms. I think the overwhelming evidence, if you have any kind of open mind at all, monogenesis is not about begetting and origins. It's about uniqueness and being one of a kind, uh, in short. John now uses it five times of Christ. Two in John 1, two uh, in John 3. Three and one in First John, and all five of these in John are dealing with the birth and incarnate Christ. Where the word became flesh and dwelt among us, he's begotten of a woman, etc. Um, this way. Why is Christ unique? He's the only God-man. Virgin birth, etc. No one else like that. So in the Bible, monogenes focuses on uniqueness, not origins, the onlyness of a child, the uniqueness of a child. We have good reason to think that the Christological checks are focusing on the concept of unique, the one and only, the one of a kind, son of God, because he's sired by supernatural means without a human father, which makes him literally the son of God, etc., etc. Um, so because of the wrongful linking of monogenes to begetting, we need now to look at Ganao. So I repeat myself, some of the again, church fathers leverage this. Uh, Ganao is a temporal or eternal beginning of the sun. We talked about that. And we have a singular act of beginning in our anti-Trinitarians. Hence, the one guy who is very blunt that the father precedes the son in existence. Ganao, the masculine form, is a man siring a child. Basically, a man got a woman pregnant and a baby's on the way. When used in the feminine form, it's the woman giving birth. So it's the other end of the pregnancy. When used in the passive form, that's the person being born or birthed. New Testament only uses Ganao of Christ in two ways. This list is dealing with him being born of a woman, born of Mary, being birthed as a human. Incarnation. You know, you were born of fornication, right? You know, etc. The other two, three times, is quoting Psalm 2, verse 7. As for me, this, the first line, verse 6, is God speaking. Verse 7 is the king's response to God. As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. These folks are asserting that this is a clear biblical reference that Christ was begotten in eternity. Way back there somewhere. And the fact that this is a coronation psalm that was read at every Jewish king's coronation seems to be minimized or bypassed in the process. So the question is, is this a literal beginning in eternity? Well, if we let, first of all, this is a coronation psalm. The king is being installed into office. And in classic Old Testament era idea, you have a superior king installing a vassal king into office. So God is the supreme king. David is the vassal king to rule Israel for God. Nebuchadnezzar is the supreme king. He installs Jehoiakim or somebody, okay? And so in here, God as the suzerain king is, let me rephrase. So whenever in, in that culture you had a sovereign king installing a vassal king, they always used the language of begetting and that the, king is, the vassal king is now becoming the son 
of the sovereign king. It's a metaphor for being born or installed into your office. Okay? And so, please notice that even in Psalm 2-7, the king precedes, the king being coronated precedes his begetting by the superior king. He pre-exists his begetting. Has to be metaphoric. He already exists and then he's, he's told you're being begotten. He pre-exists his own begetting. Has to be metaphor. It's installation into office. It's not um, a literal begetting. And so Psalm 2 is not dealing with a literal, physical begetting of anyone. Three times in the New Testament, we have a direct quote of this psalm. Acts 13, Paul is talking, we bring good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, to our children by raising Jesus. Notice the timing, raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. So here, Paul quotes Psalm 2-7 and applies it to the risen Christ, a.k.a. like Hebrews. He's not applying it backwards in eternity. He's applying it to the installation of Christ after the resurrection. So again, Paul is picking up the metaphoric coronation installation theology right in harmony with the psalm. The other two texts are in Hebrews. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you, or again I will be to him a father? Remember the context, this is when after Christ made purification for sins and sat down. So this is the same as Acts. This is what God is saying at the coronation of Christ into his post-resurrection kingly office. So we have a two-thirds majority already applying Psalm 2-7 after the resurrection, not a long time ago. Likewise then, Hebrews 5, so also Christ did not exalt himself to be made high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Notice that the begotten is the equivalent of being appointed. Again, when is this? This is the post-resurrection installation as the Melchizedek and high priest, exactly as per the metaphoric use in Psalm 2-7. We even have the language of appointment, again, which is interesting because in Romans 1, the son is designated or appointed as such at the resurrection, ironically, in Romans 1. What's the point then? Let's keep going. All the New Testament uses of Psalm 2, all of the inspired uses of Psalm 2 that quote it fully, always apply it to the ascension of Christ, never back in eternity. That should give us a hint if we're going to follow the Bible and let it interpret itself. None of them go backwards into eternity. I have a whole article on this in Perspective Digest that we mentioned uh, that expands this a little further, so feel free to have at it. However, it's very clear from Gabriel why Jesus gets the title of Son of God. Mary asked Gabriel, how am I going to have a baby if I haven't known a man? And the Gabriel answers, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, the power of the Most High will overshadow you, therefore the child will be born to you will be called, an installation naming type language, holy and the Son of God. In other words, it's because this child that's God-man is sired by the Holy Spirit, literally begotten by the Holy Spirit, that's why he's going to be called Son of God. And the therefore here is Dio, which is a strong inferential for this reason, um, etc. language. So I kind of tend to have a tendency to trust Gabriel on this one. I think he might know what he's talking about uh, this way. So, um, let me just come back um, this way. The reason Christ is called the Son of God is he's the only member of the deity who became a human son. It's the incarnation that's going to give him this title. However, I want to contend from Proverbs 8 
that in anticipation of the incarnation, right, we know the plan of salvation was made before the world was made. God already had the blueprint in mind. And in that blueprint, Christ is going to incarnate, become a baby, live a human life, etc., etc. And so in anticipation of this, Proverbs 8 shows us Christ back in eternity taking on those offices of the mediatorial one. And he begins to function in anticipation in this specialized role. But he takes the honorific in anticipation. This is why he's called son, says the angel. So let's go to Proverbs 8 very briefly. In short, this is another coronation installation uh, into office like Psalm 2. Um, first of all, the irony here is that while we're talking about Christ, wisdom is the symbol here, and wisdom in Proverbs 8 is a woman, and yet it's symbolizing Christ. Verse 22, it says, uh, actually the English Standard did a good job, the Lord possessed me in the beginning. So this is the equivalent of the word being with God in the beginning. Ellen White uses this verse for the pre-existence of Christ before creation um, this way. The word kana, to acquire or possess, but because theologians are struggling with this for some reason, a number of your translates, translations try to go with the word created, but nowhere else in the Bible does kana connote the idea of creating. <coughs> the point is that wisdom was part of who God was before he started to make anything. These people will try to connect it to Eve because she said she acquired Cana, a man-child, because the name Cain comes from Cana, I've acquired. She thinks Cain is the one she's acquired who will defeat the serpent. And, uh, and so they try to make Cana this birthing through Cain. But the point of Cana with Cain is not the birthing or begetting. The point is she thinks that she has received God's promise of the seed that she's acquired the promise of the seed who will crush the head of the serpent um, this way. Now, verses 24 and 25 do use the Hebrew language of birthing, yalad, gena'o in the Septuagint, translated as brought forth, but this is in parallelism to the verse with the installation language in verse 23, with the language of set up. And here we have the nephal of nasak, where he is set up or installed. This is the same verb in 26 where God installs in Psalm 2 the king on the throne. So this is very clearly, again, installation language. And like Psalm 2, the birthing language is metaphoric for the installation. And so the being born or begotten into your office, like Psalm 2, is installation. However, this seems to be at or before the creation, and that's why I'm saying this is showing us in that pre-creation plan of salvation, that's where Christ took all this role and, and mission upon himself, and that's indicated by Proverbs 8. Richard Davidson has an excellent paper on this. It may be in Perspective Digest, almost certainly on the ATS site um, this way, but the short version is Proverbs 8 is coronation. It's not literal begetting and we can make a good case for it just like Psalm 2. So, why are we arguing about this? The theological purpose of the Trinity, in my view, is the same as the second commandment. Both are designed to remind us that God is not knowable through philosophy. God is not knowable through reason. God is too big for you to figure out. God is too mysterious for you to figure out. So the point of these two doctrines are to humble us and say, you've got to receive God as revealed and whether it makes sense to you or not doesn't matter. You have to humble yourself and say, I know this about God to be true, but I can't understand how all these pieces fit together. I find God a Father, God a Son, God a Holy Spirit. I have no idea how to explain how it's one God. And if you tell me you have the answer, then I know you don't know what you're talking about. (laughs) 
Humans have always wanted to demystify God. Because a demystified God is a God you can control. I would suggest, and I'm working in my sabbatical on a book that involves the commandments, and in the second commandment I'm arguing that it protects God's right to mystery. And humans have wanted to violate God's right to mystery by demystifying and making him understandable and packageable, and you end up like the little gods we used to have downstairs before we went to the coins. Little idols that people worship that I could fit in this shirt pocket. Trinity reminds us that God is a mystery, you can't understand it, and you just got to accept it even though not everything makes sense to you. It's a great humbling. Be careful that when we start defining God, that's idolatry, that's the image that we carve. Folks, idolatry is alive and well. We just carve our gods out of ideas now instead of out of wood and stone. Number two, we know God through his roles. God reveals himself through how he relates to us. He has not revealed himself in his fullness to us. We wouldn't be able to stand it. We need to be careful not to confuse God's roles to us as his roles to each other. And let me make a crude analogy. The five-year-old child constructs a theory of marriage by watching mommy and daddy in the kitchen and in the living room and in the car and at church and at grandma's house and you know, at Walmart, etc. right? And they may even have some theory about behind the shut door of the bedroom. But I'll guarantee you the five-year-old has no clue about the fullness of the bedroom. Right? <laughs> but they formed a theory by how mommy and daddy relate to them. And we form a theory about how God relates to us. And my counsel to you is we need to stay out of the bedroom and let God be God. Otherwise, it becomes a form of idolatry. Need to know our limits. What's interesting to me is if I take the, f if each is fully independently, etc. God, that means that any one of the three could do any of the other three's role to us. Interesting quote from Ellen White, had God the Father come to our world and dwelt among us, veiling his glory and humbling himself that humanity might look upon him, the history that we have in the life of Christ would not have been changed in unfolding its record of his own condescending grace. She seems to indicate that God the Father could have just as easily been the one. And so any of them are qualified to do anybody else's job. Somehow between the three of them they come up, you go, we'll stay, and we'll take on these roles. I think folks without the Trinity, we end up with too simplistic a view of God. Catholicism tends to focus on the Father. And if you focus only on that side of God, God becomes high, mighty, shock and awe and fearful. Isaiah, right? I saw God on the throne. Ah, oh, help me! Protestantism focuses on Jesus. The warm, intimate, personal Jesus to the point they forget about the judgment of God and the sovereign aspects by the Father. Even though Jesus in Revelation exercises those fatherly attributes, he comes with swords and so, right? Charismatics focus on the Holy Spirit and the mystery and power of God. And by focusing on one third of the Trinity, they end up with a warped view of God. By taking on those specialties, each member of the Trinity helps us see a particular dimension of God so we can put the three together and have a balanced holistic picture of God and not fall into one of those three ditches. It diminishes the gospel in my view. 
Because if Christ is a divine son who is always under the authority of the Father, sent by the Father on a mission under orders, he now becomes the hireling sent by God to save us instead of God of God himself coming to save us. But the glory of the gospel in Philippians 2 is that Christ who in very nature is God, who was equal with God, gave up the rights and equalities of deities and took the form of a servant to save people who would hate him and crucify him. What more glorious story is there than an all-powerful God who never has to face a no in his life? Whatever he wants, he has a legal right to. And yet this God said no to himself and emptied himself of his sovereignty to take the lowest position to teach us about who he is. But if Christ is not the highest God, but is a subordinate, it diminishes the glory of that story. It diminishes the glory, right? Emmanuel, God with us. Yahweh became flesh and dwelt among us. An impersonal Holy Spirit, first of all, I got to deal with a lot of problem text and a lot of Ellen White text, and if I can somehow talk myself out of all, I can make the Bibles and Ellen White say whatever I want them to say, and I'm a sitting duck for deception. If the Holy Spirit is impersonal, then all that work on the Holy Spirit in me very easily starts to convert into more of a working in my substance in the Greek style, and that moves us toward the pantheism of Kellogg and Wagner and so forth, where Christ works literally in my flesh and being through an impersonal Holy Spirit as opposed to person to person. Missiology, if God sends an impersonal force to me to convict me of sin and stuff, then I send out impersonal evangelism to missionize the world. But if the Holy Spirit, like Christ, is a person who comes to me personally, then I model that by going out personally and meeting people personally. Hello? Finally, it distracts the church from its mission. We're here at the end of the world where everything is breaking loose. Marriage and sexuality is going haywire legal and spiritual issues all over the place, and we're so narrow-minded that all we can do is argue about the Adventist Church Fathers and the Trinity. God help us, we got more important things to be about. I'm gonna ad lib a final comment. Not on the slides, this is the last slide. This is my 19th year at Southern. For the last 17 to 18 years, I've been going out regularly around the Southern Union to churches to assist them with this issue. Most of the non or anti-Trinitarians that I've encountered tend to be older. And I say that with care because I'm realizing in the mirror that I'm, a lot of kids view me now as older. You know, the big 6-0 is not far away. But a lot of these people are gray-haired, 60, 70, 50, 60, 70. A lot of these people are long-term Adventists. Again, not all, but a lot of them are long-term Adventists. But a lot of them were brought into the church when I was a kid. And the way we brought people into the church was to tell everything we opposed. We opposed pork. <laughs> we opposed the Pope. <laughs> We oppose Sunday. We oppose alcohol, right? And our identity spiritually was formed, our spirituality tended to be oppositionalist. And we defined ourselves by what we opposed more than by what we stood for. Okay? And some of us old heads know what I'm talking about, right? And the problem is it's become out of fashion to bash the Pope. And a lot of these people have been Adventists so long, they have no non-Adventist friends. But their spirituality requires that they oppose something and find something wrong with something. 
And that oppositionalist spirituality has turned nihilistic against their own church. And it's possible that there may be an element of pride that my great intelligence, I'm gonna figure God out once and for all. I'm gonna be the right one against the majority who are wrong. And I think it's this, I'm the right part of this little elite against the majority is a key spirituality that I find repeatedly in this movement. We should be defined by following Christ, not by what we oppose. Now, because I follow a Christ, I'm going to oppose some things, right? But, but the point is, my definition should be from following Christ, not from opposing. I can oppose without Christ. I can oppose and be spiritually dead. Paul, right? And he said, I had to give up all that stuff in order to find Christ and his righteousness and for me to fit into that new model. Let's be careful that we know who we are in positive terms instead of defining ourselves in oppositionalist terms. It's the oppositionalist terms that distract us from our mission because it will always turn nihilistic when we have no more outside enemy to oppose. And it's this nihilism that's erupting all over the church today. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.